Tonight, I'd like to talk about awareness, mindfulness, the mirror of mindfulness, to contextualize or put in perspective the various forms of practice that we'll be doing here so we understand what is the common denominator, so we don't get lose sight of the forest because we're in the trees, so that we don't mistake the means for the end. You know, whether we're having a great meditation or not this evening means very little in the bigger perspective. So we shouldn't take it all too seriously. And anyway, who knows what a good meditation or good and bad really are anyway, except the little thinker inside rubbing his his or her hands together like a little pawnbroker. behind the screen of the Wizard of Oz. So tonight I'd like to read from my new book, soon to be published by Snowline, called The Natural Great Perfection, Vajra Songs and Dzogchen Teachings by my own Lama teacher, Nyoshu Kempo Rinpoche. I'm going to read one of the poems in here. It's called the mirror of mindfulness, the Vajra mirror of mindfulness. To begin my tirade. Nyoshi Kempo is, he lives in Bhutan, he's a Tibetan Lama. He's an enlightened vagabond in the lineage of Patrul Rinpoche, Longchenpa, Milarepa, and so on, Digmi Lingpa, the non-sectarian practice lineage. He wrote this poem when we were in the three-year retreat in southern France about 12 years, 13, was it 1981 or two, more than a dozen years ago. It's amazing how fast time flies in a dream. Anyway, 12 years gone like that, and now it's 1994 instead of 1982. But this poem is still stuck with thumbtacks under plastic on the door of the three-year retreat center where he put it. He was sick in those days, and um, as he's not so young, he didn't have any paper or pens in his room. We were kind of stingy with him. (laughs) And he just, he found the magic marker in the kitchen, and he wrote it like this with the magic marker on paper towels. (laughs) 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 And then he... And he ta- of course he had servants, and I, I was one of his attendants, and you know we could he, we could do anything for him, but he's an independent yogi. He just wandered around in the middle of the night and did this one night while we were all asleep, and he tacked it up on the gate inside the three retreat center. So I'm telling you this so you'll understand, especially when he gets to this thing about three years three years full of shit and three years full of piss. (laughs) This is translated from the Tibetan, of course. (laughs) This is translated from the Tibetan. The Vajra Mirror of Mindfulness, a spontaneous song. Homage to the sovereign within, self-existent awareness. I, the teacher, am the Vajra of mindfulness. In case you're not familiar with the word Vajra, it means diamond, thunderbolt, 
many translations, immutable Vajra. I am the Vajra of mindfulness. Look, Dharma friends, when you see me, wake up, pay attention, be mindful. I am like the mirror of mindfulness. I mirror your total attention. Look clearly, moment by moment, pay attention and directly perceive the essential nature of your own heart and mind. Mindfulness is the root of all Dharma teaching. Mindful awareness is the body of spiritual practice. Mindfulness and presence of mind is the fortress of the heart and mind that protects us from evil. Mindful awareness is none other than the wisdom of innate wakefulness, wisdom itself. Mindfulness is the heart of the renowned tantric non-dual practices known as Mahamudra, Mahati, Dzogchen, and Madhyamika, the great middle way. Mindfulness is the heart of them all. Lack of mindful awareness will allow negative forces to overcome you. And without mindful awareness, you will be swept away by laziness and indifference. Lack of mindfulness and awareness creates evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished, neither in the world nor in the spirit. Lack of mindfulness here will just result in three and a half years worth pile of shit. Without mindfulness, you will wake up three years later drowning in nothing but a notion of piss. Without mindfulness, you are like heartless zombies a walking walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please pay attention and be mindful. By the aspiration and inspiration, blessings of all the holy teachers, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, lineage masters, Devas, Dakinis, Dharma protectors, may all my Vajra friends attain stable mindful awareness and ascend the throne of primordial awakening. Then there's a few words at the end in the colophon. These few words were extemporaneously composed by the buck-toothed foolish ox, the fallen monk, Jamyang Dorje and offered to his Dharma friends who have the eyes of Dharma. Sarva Mangala, may all beings be happy. <coughs> so this Dzogchen master, somebody who has studied all the great texts, all the yanas, all the Tipitaka, and memorized practically the Tipitaka in his youth, all the yogas and tantras and everything, all the 
practices says that mindful awareness is the heart of the matter. And it is. Attention is of the very essence of awakening. There's no other way. There's no substitute. Saying the magic mantra, saying the all-powerful, user-friendly Dzogchen mantra, ah, doesn't do anything for you if you're not paying attention. Saying any mantra, getting any empowerment or initiation, going on pilgrimage to any holy place, without paying attention, without awareness, you don't even know where you are. You won't even see the great temple when you get there. Awareness is the heart of the matter. All the spiritual life converges in this point. There's no substitute for it. We have to pay attention. It's actually something that's up to us to do. Awareness is within, but if we don't pay attention, it doesn't function very much for us. So here we're practicing, in the practicing lineage style, the cultivation of innate awareness, natural openness and awareness, Dzogchen. But don't think that just that word alone is going to do anything for us. The Buddha may be in the palm of our hands, but it's up to us to recognize that, to awaken to that, to use it, to get used to it. I was in France for nine years in that retreat center, the three-year retreat center. I was a kind of slow learner. took a long time. But it reminded me kind of... We say in the Dzogchen, the French Dzogchen tradition, the wine is already in the bottle, but it does get better year by year. <laughs> through practice, through getting used to what we have recognized as true. We don't need to get something from outside. It is there already. It's not just, as I said last night, it's not just as is so often recited, like parrot, like Buddhists, all beings have Buddha nature. All beings are Buddha nature. There is no other, there is nothing else. It is all Buddha nature manifesting. Let's not overlook that and keep window shopping. It's beautiful, it's romantic, it's lovely to be seekers, pilgrims on the path. But are we ever willing to become finders? Do we want to stay students our whole life? We're afraid to leave the campus and go out into the world and grow up? Seekers become finders if they're really seeking. Are we ready to find ourselves? To recognize this? Our own true nature? To awaken and to embody the freedom and peace that is within? Not just to wait for the, the perfect place, for the perfect master to give us the perfect touch, like the big bang of enlightenment. It never doesn't happen that way. Even if it looks like it's happening to someone else, it doesn't exactly, from the inside, it's not exactly how it happens. It's a ripening. When we are ripe, it is not from outside that the fruit ripens.
enlightenment is an accident anyway when it happens. But as a Zen master said, practice makes us more accident prone. (laughs) (laughs) So we can't plan it too much. It's not like investing in some kind of bond or I don't know what you have in this country, but you know, some kind of banking scheme where you can plan exactly the curve. But there are particular principles here that we know about, just like we know the apples fall in the autumn. So these principles work for us as long as we know them. The spiritual practices are in accord with those principles and the ripening definitely occurs. We don't have to doubt that. We can question it, that's healthy, but it happens, definitely happens. So while we're here, I'd like again and again to keep recalling what we're doing here in the context of this path of awakening, of cultivating our true nature. We've been doing sitting meditation, sky gazing. We've been doing self-inquiry, turning the mind back upon itself in the middle of it, which is part of the preliminary practices to Dzogchen, Nundro. We've been doing we chanted the mantra, ah, we chanted Omani Pemihung with the compassion meditation, metta, the four boundless. We, today we shouted pet, another Dzogchen practice to startle us beyond ourselves. That may sound like five different practices, but it's all part of one single thing. This Dzogchen way of awakening or reviving our true nature, recognizing what is beyond our finite dualistic intellect and concepts. These little devices tune up our openness and awareness practice, so use them as you find useful. In the Dzogchen tradition, we always say, and I am just translating from the Tibetan now, I never had an original thought in my life, I can assure you. (laughs) Just plagiarizing. In Dzogchen we say, many quickies better than few longies. (laughs) Unlike some other activities perhaps. But in, in meditation we want to revive it, refresh it again and again, not get stale so that the bread gets crusted over. Keep the flowing waters from freezing up. You know how sometimes we're meditating along and... To tell you the truth, in our tradition, because we always sit with our eyes open, we also have a light room. We don't usually sit in a darkened room. And I notice the tendency here. But we say many quickies rather than few longies because we want to keep cutting through again and again in the present moment. That's where it happens. Not many prolongies. You know, longer is better. Keep checking your watch every five minutes until you get to the jackpot after one hour. (laughs) It's not like that. We're not getting paid by the minute. (laughs) You know, too often we think longer is better in meditation and, you know, we start having these kind of meditations. I'm sure you know about these. You know, then we look at our watch and then 10 more minutes. 
It's not the quantity, but the quality that counts. Obviously, the quality of our present awareness. That's why we want to break it up again and again with many quickies. That's why it's called cutting through. Each moment actually could be a cutting through. But certainly every few minutes, break the holding pattern. You know that meditative holding pattern. We get comfortable and peaceful. Finally, after a few days, maybe our thoughts settle a tiny bit. Oh, having good meditation. <laughs> That's the time to shout, Pah! <laughs> and see what remains. If it can fall apart, it should fall apart. It's just put together with crazy glue. It's fabricated. It's conditioned. If you can fall off it, it's too small. It's not the thing, the ground was ground. That's why we cut through with turning the mind on itself with the self-inquiry question. You know, pop the question. Who or what is experiencing? Who is what is feeling the pain? Trace the experience source. Trace back the source of the radiance, as the Korean Zen master Chinu always says. Trace back the source of all the sensory radiance to the source of experience, the common denominator, the mirror-like incandescent awareness, luminous awareness. Every once in a while, take a breath, a sky breath, in the middle of your peaceful, or for that matter, agitated meditation, and start again. <sighs> Drop everything and just afresh start again. A whole new meditation hour, just for a minute. Or in the middle of your day, where, light, where it really counts. We can bring this practice in for one moment, standing online, or at our desk, or stopped at a red light, or whatever. You know, you can shout pet while you're standing on the street corner, <laughs> or whatever, on the train. Or you can do it internally. <laughs> the inner pet. Be that as may, you wake yourself up. You take charge of our, wake, awaken our energy. Instead of just slipping into somnolence. I think of it as like a meditative holding pattern. We get comfortable, and it's just like a plane, you know, you, when you fly somewhere, if there's too much traffic, like in New York this always happens, they don't let you land, so you just circle, they put you in a holding pattern. And that's like our meditation sometimes, I find. We're afraid to just land, you know, sort of get on with it, the process. We get comfortable there, we know where we are, and everything's under control. Haha, sure. And just cruising along, cruising, schmoozing, sort of wasting time in a way, rather than investigating, inquiring, passionately interested. There are seven factors of enlightenment in the sutras, but the main, it said in the questions of King Melinda, the Bhikkhu Nagasena says, the main factor of enlightenment is investigation into things not concentration, not morality, investigation into things. So how does it, well does that go with this meditative holding pattern? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Having good meditation today. Mm. <laughs> Pull my quilt a little warmer. Mm. 
you know, I'm not making fun of you, that's me. I've been doing that for years. Investigation into things is the main factor of enlightenment. So we want to cut through and see how things are, not just skate, not just wade in the ocean, just get our toesies a little wet because we're afraid to risk really plunging in. So all these practices are supposed to be energetic. I mean, this is a tantric path after all. Energy, energetic, passion, celebration even, but we'll go into that towards the end, dancing with life, <laughs> integration. But we didn't get there yet. We can take charge of our energy. If we're dull, we can take a breath, we can do a breathing exercise, we can shout pet, we can do even the devotional practice, whatever. You know, we can manage our energy. We are masters of ourselves, even if we don't know it. There is no other master or mistress, even if we don't know it. The Buddhist term, the key Buddhist term, so much abused, anatta, always translated as not-self. I'm tired of that translation, so I did some study. I tried to find if I could find anything else there. Edward Kanzi turned up another derivation, ungovernable. Very interesting. There is no governor, not just no creator upstairs. No governor. Everything's out of control. That's the nature of things, anatta. And yet we're control freaks, so we suffer. Anicca, anatta, dukkha, anatta, ungovernable, no governor, no government. What relief. <laughs> you see, there's relief in that not just fear of the unknown. So I think it's very important to look into these things and see where we are hung up. Like maybe we're afraid to face this ungovernable, mysterious nature. Or if we ask who we are, maybe we're afraid, afraid to face that we don't know, we can't find anyone in there. Scary. But fear is very revealing. It's like on a treasure map, you know, X marks the spot. You find fear, dig there. That's the place where the treasure is of growth and transformation and enlightenment. What is afraid, after all, except the ego, ourself? Feed a little bit of that to the fear, the demon-like fear eats the ego if we can stay with that fear it's just the ego that wants to recoil to retract face the fear and it's like feeding a little bit of the ego to that demon it erodes the fear so when we're doing these practices again to come back to the theme tonight and I do want to end this soon so we have plenty of time for question and answers which is very helpful I find all of these practices are part of this practice of cutting through, seeing through the main Dzogchen practice, sky gazing, cutting through, seeing through, tuning up the awareness again and again with many quickies, so it's aerated again and again, perforate the solidity, 
cut through the dualism, burst the bubble of concepts, experience the natural, it says in books these days, natural state, poor translation, because it's not a state, but the natural state, the the Tao, how things are. Everything is available in the natural state. Nothing is lacking. And there's nothing extra we have to get rid of there either. Everything is available. All the enlightened qualities that we want to develop can come spontaneously out of that great selfless openness. Definitely. So when we're practicing here, we do these practices, but it is according to the view, the outlook of Dzogchen, not just thinking that the means itself are totally what matter, because the means are just like toys or devices to introduce us to how things are beyond the method, with or without our effort to make them so. If we've experienced how things are, then the main practice is just getting used to that, maturing that realization, working out its implications in every facet of existence. There's no other practice. Crossing our legs is just one asana. Cross our legs, cross our eyes, cross our nose, cross ourselves. That's nice. But we can't spend our whole life on the cross. We have to live, dance with life in every form, whatever tune is being played. We'll talk more about that later on this subject of integration toward the end of the week. But dancing with life, not becoming a wallflower, watching from the sidelines. So I'd like to invite any questions now. Feel free People come and see me, they have a lot of questions, so this is the time also. Please feel free. Yes? You spoke about um, your nine years in the... Uh, <coughs> I never should have said that. Okay. Um, what would you like to say to me about your own experience there? You know, did you come to realize that you know your mind? How was that for you? you know? Was that an event, or you know, what were the consequences of that? And how do you relate that to compassion? Compassion is the true nature of mind. Compassion actually is so much of a concept these days. Love, unconditional love and openness is the true nature of our heart and mind. Good. Truth without love is a lie. What does that mean, then? Well, you asked, I answered, that's all. I mean, you can't say you real. there's nothing to realize if that's not the outflow of it. There's no emptiness realized without connectedness, empathy, loving-kindness, compassion pouring forth. Wisdom and emptiness is not a sterile, it's not a, a, a vacuum. Again, we talk in Buddhism perhaps too much about not-self 
How about if we just bring it down to the ground here and say, unselfish. What is the relationship between unselfish and compassion? It's huge, right? The less selfish we are, the more room we have for others. The less you know, demand selfish we are, the more loving we are. That's just facts of life. Everybody knows that. We don't have to be all airy-fairy about not-self, shunyata, emptiness, tatagatagarbha. Realize yourself, your, your true nature, transpersonal, interconnected nature, and you're less selfish. How can that but be of benefit to everyone? And, of course, a great, very gratifying for oneself, too. I I prefer not to say anything more about my own enlightenment experiences and retreat or any other fireworks. (laughs) Roger? What is the relationship between uh, Rigpa and and Grandpa or Dati? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. He was using the word drempa most of the time, but sometimes he alternated with with rigpa. Um, this is a little bit technical discussion, but perhaps illuminating for our practice. When Sharon Salzberg asked Tukurgyan Rinpoche, what's, what is fixation, attachment, and Sogchen, we often translate as fixation, mean, he said, the mind reaching out to objects. And he didn't just say desire. He's telling, because this is what we're getting down to, right? Very subtle. The mind reaching out to objects. So of course, how does the mind reach out? It doesn't have a hand, but it has a. It notes things, or it labels things, or it conceptualizes things. You know, name and form, right? Is the mind. Um, that's drempa. Mindfulness recognizing things. Of course, it can get deeper towards non-dual or you know, natural mindfulness, but we, we would say at the other end of that spectrum, here is mindfulness doing that, reaching out to things, you know, noting objects or whatever you think of as mindfulness in general, only in general. On the other end of the same spectrum, because they're not separate really, is Rigpa, or it's the non-dual awareness that simply reflects anything without reaching out, there's no separation. I'm just giving his description. Like the mirror-like awareness, which reflects everything, but is not affected by them. It doesn't reach out. It doesn't do anything. Mindfulness has a slight feeling of doing something in it. Of course, later, it could obviously reach all the way to that level of Rigpa, and it must. Is is it possible for uh, mindfulness be mindful of the mind itself. So it's yeah. back there. Is that right? Is that right for it? Is it still reaching out uh, to an object? Is the mind just the object of that situation? Well, the problem is the mind's really can't, you know, it's like positive and positive on a magnet. It can just short circuit and jump away. So, you know, as it says in some Zen poem, the eye cannot know it, see itself, the sword cannot cut itself. The mind cannot 
really know itself in that sense. So it's a kind of a non... Yeah, it's no show there. But, you know, the eye can see itself in a mirror, so the mind can see itself better with the mirror of certain techniques. Like I said, and this fits very well in what we're talking about tonight, these are techniques that skillful means, that's the upaya side, the skillful means, the methods of the Dharma, the enlightened technology here. I don't just mean here, I mean in Dharma teachings. So, with Rigpa, uh, this non-dual awareness, however, it is like cognizance itself, it's not knowing something. It hasn't yet descended to the level of self and other, so there's nothing to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would that relate to then uh, uh, the five skandhas consciousness? Being, right. Being knowing consciousness. Yes. So the five con- uh, the five skandhas are all kalashavarana, right? So that means they're defiled or something, in, in they're unsatisfactory and so on. So we, you know, Buddhist psychology makes a clear difference between consciousness and enlightenment. So Dzogchen just takes off from that, you know. The fifth skanda consciousness is where we place intellect, and this is the startling thing I'm just waiting to just drop on you. Mind. Mind is, this is a Dzogchen pith instruction, I'm just translating from Tibetan. Mind is delusion. Rigpa awareness is wisdom. So mind, you know, mind is being defined then as on that side, the consciousness, the dualistic side. But awareness is deeper than that or more fundamental or untarnished. That's why it's called primordial awareness or Buddha nature or something. It's not mind. Certainly not my mind or our mind or conscious mind. Something deeper than that. In the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, it says the mind is um, luminous, by nature pure, only visited by, it's visited by temporary obscurations. So that's the positive side. Usually we hear not self and, you know, <clears throat> no, nothing, impermanent and suffering and all that. But the positive side, which is what the tantric teachings really pick up and use, the positive side of emptiness or not-self is the, the luminous, the knowing, the cognizant, the unborn and undying quality of the immutable nature. It says all conditioned things are impermanent. It doesn't say, well, you know, it doesn't say everything's impermanent. The unconditioned is not impermanent. It says in the sutras, Buddha himself said nirvana is eternal. <clears throat> so this rigpa is somehow connected with that the Dharmakaya, it's unborn and undying, unlike the mind and consciousness. So, again, a clear distinction is made between mind, rigpa, and, sorry, mind, sem, and non-dual awareness, rigpa. And our practice will reveal some of that, as you see the difference between all the states of consciousness or the, the experiences you have, 
and the common denominator, you get more deeply into that, your true nature, how that is not improved by good meditations and it's not ruined by a binge of any kind. (laughs) It's truly transcendent and unborn and undying and so on. The mind in all its states are just the surface, you know, like the ripples, the waves on the ocean, the icebergs, however big they are, are nothing, still nothing compared to the oceans. Yes? There's something that you said, I think, a couple of times in your um, introduction or dedication to meditation sessions. I don't remember the words, but it's something like you say, may we be free from something, something other than confusion. Only did something really intriguing, which was, and may confusion dawn as something like mm-hmm. that. Could you explain that a bit more? You want me to explain something other? Technical term. Now, this, this is a Dzogchen prayer, yeah. and the fourth line is the intriguing one. Yeah. The third line is something about may confusion and delusion and suffering be pa- clarified, right. dispelled. Right. The fourth line yeah. is... Actually, I soften a little bit. I dilute it a little bit so we can drink it. Mm-hmm. What it says in Tibetan is, may confusion dawn as wisdom. Mm-hmm. I try to unpack that a little bit for our appreciation. I say, may confusion dawn in the light of wisdom. But it means that may everything be recognized as it is, let's say, in the light of wisdom. It's not just we have to get rid of confusion. How about just arrive in the still eye in the center of the storm? Sit there. We can recognize everything as display of this this pure primordial awareness. Collations, any kind of delusion, anything. Just to go further, further confuse you. It says in Dzogchen, the five poisons, you know, greed, hatred, delusion, the three kalashas, and we add on pride and jealousy just to make five. <laughs> the Tibetans always have, try to have more of everything. <laughs> <laughs> the five poisons actually are, by the, in nature, the five wisdoms. Like mirror-like wisdom, discriminating wisdom, equanimity wisdom, and so on. It just means that kalash, even see kalash is not just a poison that we have to get rid of. It can also be a poison that we can use as ve- as, as serum, as vaccination. It can be a poison that we drink and transmute into crazy wisdom. The different levels of relating to poison, even in the pharm- medical pharmacopoeia, right? So in the different yonic vehicles or levels of tantra and so on, there are different levels of how we relate to the poisonous kalashas the negative emotions also to make confusion itself dawn as wisdom and everything it's like saying everything is sacred not just Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama and church the Pope everything is sacred everything is part of it and it is it also means everything is equal That's why Bodhidharma got in trouble in China and the, the, the emperor asked him something like, 
what was your meditation experiences in nine-year retreat? He said, who are you? But he wanted like his credentials. And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. <laughs> and then the emperor told Bodhidharma who he, the emperor was, how he was the Buddhist leader of 10 billion people, and he built 100,000 stupas and temples. And Bodhidharma said, in vast emptiness, nothing is holy. And he got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> he went and sat in a cave for nine years. That's the Bodhidharma story. You see, everything is equal, and nothing is... I mean, everything is holy, but that also means nothing is especially holy. So it's intense. <laughs> it's intense, but it's, it's real. That's, may everything do on his wisdom, or in the light of wisdom, or in the light of awareness. Because he brought up the beautiful word sati, and everything dawns illumined, transparent, free, freely. Everything, including ourselves, our own minds, hang-ups, or whatever. <coughs> yes, in the back? Can, can you follow on from what you were saying just now about the poison, and say what practice, other than the manual already has given us, is using the poison as a cutting edge for our practice? Well, the practice that we're doing here is really directly addressed to that. You know, you've heard me say many times, there's room for everything. Let it go, let it be as it is. Don't suppress it. We're not trying to control the mind or suppress thoughts or avoid thoughts, excuse me, or conflicting emotions, but allow them to, they're just energy. Allow them to just express themselves and release themselves. We also don't have to suppress it, but we also don't have to indulge in it and proliferated as it were so the Dzogchen master Jigby Lingpa said the more uh, the more wood the better the bonfire so he was talking about this kind of awareness practice you know the more thoughts the more awareness if you're at that level not the more distractions it's not just the more thoughts the more distractions when you recognize thoughts as display of awareness, as waves in the ocean of awareness, it's just arising and releasing itself. You don't have to you know, get out your, your thought swatter and be swatting those pesky <laughs> thoughts away, <laughs> or for that matter, emotions, feelings, or collations. The more, you know, the more firewood, the brighter the b- bonfire blazes. It's all grist for the fuel for the fire, including the collations. That doesn't mean you become a, 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 a psycho killer. If the energy is continually rising and releasing, it doesn't build up to that point. There's no build-up. There's no karma. It's being released every moment. Cause and effect doesn't link together. It's just first moment, only moment. This is called the self-liberation of the kalashas, the poison. It is the transmutation of base, metal or poison into gold elixir that's the tantric transformation so it doesn't depend on vowing and trying to keep yourself from you know following them it depends more on the inner uh, tantric bond or commitment of awareness recognition so even if you're angry you don't just hit 
back at someone and that energy just kind of arises and releases itself it's like the wrathful deity surrounded by flames maybe you've seen them in tantric iconography those are called flames of wisdom it's not anger which is dualistic anger at someone that's karma conditioning cause and effect it's just and releasing liberating itself it's beautiful actually where passion becomes compassion you want to pursue this a little? I do actually try it's <laughs> good um, try I'm just wondering in the middle of a conflagration for example you know the bonfire is really raging how to bring in then the practice you're talking about in terms of the watching the sky, the spaciousness. You know, from my experience, when there's conflagration, you know, that the, the smoke of the bonfire is... Fills up the whole sky, yeah. <laughs> um, did we hit the right collation here? Are we talking about anger or what are we talking about? What kind of conflagration might this be, in theory? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone, right? But Anyone. Just pick one. I mean, okay, uh, You see, we have this dualistic notion that we have to get away from that, but if we just jump right into it, then there's no one to be angry. We feel, I'm angry, and then I'm bad, and I shouldn't be angry, and we just bounce back and forth, beating our heads against the wall of this duality. But when there is that energy, if we're just, like if we're really practicing sky gazing, let's not talk about the smoke covering the sky, you know, that's just an image analogy anyway. If we're practicing this openness and awareness, cutting, seeing through, and the anger arises, as it will. You know, it might not be anger, everybody's nice here and mellow, but it might be, you know, desire, or you might remember something. That's just a momentary arising. It's a blip on the radar screen. You know, it's a wave in the ocean. It's important to get practiced enough so the perspective, the view, remains at work for you, that you know it's just a display of, it's just a reflection in the mirror of the true nature of awareness. So you don't reach out for it or push it away. You see, reaching out for what you want and pushing away what you don't want are just the same. It's dualistic fixation. That's why we use the word fixation, by the way, to translate clinging. Clinging always sounds like this, but what about this? I don't want. That's dualistic clinging. I want, I don't want. It's the same. It has the same ramifications. It's karma. If you're just resting in the mirror-like awareness, things arise like waves in it. Not just negative, so-called negative things like anger and the collations, but also positive ones like positive meditation experiences, or even visions of Buddha, who knows what happens. Don't be deceived by those appearances either. They're just blips on the radar screen. So it's a matter of getting used to it and really settling back more into the beingness or the mirror-like awareness, rather than trying to control the weather in the sky, settling back into the sky-like awareness that has room for it all all this temporary or adventitious, momentary appearances. You know, getting used to it or really mastering yourself. It doesn't mean controlling the anger, but, you know, 
self-mastery it's like when you know you, who you are more that's not something you have to remember you're not fooled by you know some person criticizes you and some person praises you you just hear those things as different music but you're not deceived I'm good, I'm bad, you know. So practice is the only way. But that, don't take that lightly. That's not a cop-out, you know. That's really good news because we can do it. We have the tools in our hands. We can do it. It's not up to someone else. We're not at the mercy of our conditioning or our childhood traumas. You know, we don't have to stay in the victim pose forever at the effect of karma. We can't control the wind, the karma, but we can learn how to sail with them. We don't have to just be blown away by every wind of conditioning. We can learn how to sail with them, how to tack. We can even tack into the wind. It's very important knowledge and liberating. And awareness is curative. There's no other way more and more deepening, deepening stabilization of awareness. That's the way. And all the techniques, exercise, those are that kind of awareness. We talk about purification techniques, whatever we talk about, it's using awareness to purify. It's awareness that is the bonfire. That's purifying, that's burning up those things. It's a, as I say, you can jump into it, don't be afraid. Don't stand back. Non-harming is a very important principle, but we're also harming ourselves if we suppress ourselves because we, com- we compensate in other ways. We make ourselves sick or we do something else, addictive behavior. So it's very important not to suppress these negative emotions, but to experience whatever comes up and let it go as it goes. doesn't mean you have to act it out, but experience the arising and liberating energy without identifying with it as your own. I'm angry. I should be angry. Why am I always angry? I've been meditating for 10 years and I'm still angry. That's the slippery slope. You just anger. You get to know it and embrace it, you know, and cradle it a little bit. Thich Nhat Hanh says, cradle your anger like a, like a baby having a tantrum. But don't identify with it so much. It's not ours. It just goes back to no governor. There's no governor here. It's not ours. Questions? Yes? It says in teachings, all conditioned things are impermanent. Conditioned things are impermanent, but not all things. Like space isn't impermanent. Nirvana isn't impermanent. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it a valid tool to say uh, why should I be angry if I don't exist anyway? No, it's too it's too mental. I mean, it's a good question, but you could refine it a little more sharper. That's a little dull. That 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 tool. Why don't you just say who or what is angry, rather than assuming that you know since I don't exist anyway. That sounds like a patch trying to cover up a hole in the clothes. The patches always fall off, you know. And and you had when when you need them, they fall <laughs> off. <laughs>
better say who, who, what is angry. Or for that matter, who, you know, if you're feeling the pain in your knee. Who is experiencing the pain? It turns away from the pain to the subject. It's very liberating. Yes, and another question? It works very well. <laughs> you should do it a lot if you like it. How is not a very Buddhist question. <laughs> I don't want to try to explain how it works. It works by opening your heart and and bringing out the best in you. Of course, somebody else is part of us. You mean if we? You want to give me an example? Do you mean if you beam love to your mother, does she get it? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and if she doesn't get it now by by like, you know, telepathy, she'll get it later by airmail, by telephone, mm-hmm. or in person. I'm sure. How come I'm giving so much love to you? Can't stand my medicine. <laughs> and it's not it's not working. I wouldn't say it's not working, but you have to work at it a little more deeply. For example, maybe you are invested in wanting him to love your meditation. No, I'm... no. Um, I'm so, maybe. Of anger him. You don't care if he likes your meditation or not? No. Would you like him to don't meditate with you? I know, well, I want and I don't want, they're not that different. I want him to be different is aggression, it's not metta. Metta is acceptance, wishing well-being, loving how people however they are, including you know all the hell beings and anything, everything. Wishing them well, giving them all of our merit and our love, whatever they do to us. I know, well you have to keep doing it. How long have you been doing it? I don't think it's lo- that long compared to how long he's been angry. <laughs> you see what I mean? Everything's relative. Yeah. We may have been doing metta or whatever we're doing for five years or 25 years, but how long have we been angry? And, you know, whatever. <coughs> or wanting people to be different. I don't want to talk about metta. Well, I'll, just, I'll just drop this out. Suzuki Roshi said, if one person in the family meditates, I think he meant in a couple, let's just say that, if one person in the couple meditates, that's enough. <laughs> and I know exactly why he said it. It means like, don't try to get your partner to do what you do, to, you know, just do it yourself. And if it's good, he or she might. But it, it, when I heard that, I love that. It, it takes the pressure off. We're ourselves, supposedly, and he's himself, and that's why we're together. Just let it be. It's hard relationship, you know. This is not about metta. It's about relationship. And the more metta you can do, if you really do metta, then the more tolerance you'll have for the anger, for the ambiguity and uncertainty of all of that push and shove. I'm sure. Metta, you know, practice really has to be coupled with wisdom practice or insight practice. Otherwise, it gets very partial also when we're a little confused or we're kind of pushing and pulling things. 
it's tricky. But it definitely has an effect. Every action has a reaction in kind, as it were. It just might take a while. And it doesn't always look like we hope. So my policy is this. I do the best I can and let try to let go. Whatever happens, whatever the hell happens, happens. You just keep doing your best. That's the best you can do. And you have to let go because everything's out of control anyway. And whatever happens, happens. You do your, and you do your best again. And even if you fall on your fla- face, you get up and do again best you can. And whatever's going to happen, happens. Any questions? with notions of not trying. That's just trying not to try, you know, it gets very complex. Just give it some energy. Right effort is a balance between effort and non-effort, that's all. (coughs) Give it some energy, or wake yourself up, or pat your face, or take a breath and start again, or do some breathing exercises, or metta, or devotional practice, or chant. It's a good way to take charge of your energy. You don't have to be the victim of your, the patterns of your energy. Be the master of it. If you can't just see through it totally, then charge yourself up. Plug yourself into a, a, an energy practice. Or take a shower, go out and do walking meditation, anything. You know, if you're really tired, go and take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. I'm talking about in the fourth five minutes sitting now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can. Give yourself permission. You won't let yourself, but you know, I, I give you permission. That's why we say many quickies rather than few longies. It's not the 45 minutes that does it for you, you know. 43 minutes would also do, 20 real minutes would be fine. One real moment would do it, you know. Of course, in a group situation, we don't want to just be going in and out all the time. But this is just a little test run here of your own practice. So you get used to modulating your practice appropriately, and you, know, you don't have to jump around every time you get bored. But you also don't have to sit there and nod till you get through the 45 minutes, because that's not meditating, that's dozing. But here, certainly, you can do the inner pet or pout your face or wake up, do some breathing, start again. You know, raise your gaze and sort of open your posture and maybe take off some clothes so you're a little cooler. I try to meditate in a more bright, airy, and cool environment so I don't go into the, the dullness, the sweet, peaceful dullness. <laughs> Nothing's bothering you, but also there's not much investigation or clarity happening. 
kind of like hibernating. question I'll ask you is do your eyes get sore from just being open all day usually I think I strain them somehow right so this is more a matter of eye strain like staring or trying or not allowing ourselves to blink or so soft gaze you might even try without your glasses or outside more you know like imagine if you're on a cliff looking at the ocean you don't really count the waves and stare at them you just kind of like your ears are just like radar. It's just sort of open, a soft gaze, soft focus, not very sharp focus, like trying to read, you know, a sign on a wall. Just a very soft focus, almost unfocused, but naturally. You don't have to try to get cross-eyed or anything. And you might find then that, but it takes a little getting used to also, that, you know, if we're used to meditating with our eyes closed, then it suddenly is different. But probably you can drive all day or read all day without too much eye strain. So you can probably meditate for 45 minutes with your eyes open without creating eye strain once you get the hang of it. look at one point but you don't have to move like there's the sky just gaze at it that's not a wall that's just the open space so just but try it outside also and see if that helps in the sky or go up a little and what did you find well I wear sunglasses outside if it's too bright and be practical <laughs> you're also allowed to you know lower your eyes and take a rest see actually it doesn't matter if your eyes are open or closed but we're introducing some basic principles here we're not sky worshippers you know we're not <laughs> gazing at the heavens or anything this is a metaphor for openness awareness and spacious and clarity bright you know clarity and presence and all the senses open including the mind not just trying to get rid of the thoughts and not hear anything and not think any see anything but really engaged engaged or open to everything not withdrawing or not withholding ourselves sure Mm-hmm. It could be. Yeah. So why don't you, when your eyes get start to hurt, you can close your eyes and and do it that way and just see if it's the same. You know, you can also, if you close your eyes, it's not exactly dark and claustrophobic, is it? It's very. It's like black light. It's shimmering. You could look through your eyelids into the sky and just practice sky gazing in this kind of light. Mm-hmm. 
with your eyes closed very easily. But Dzogchen is really taught with eyes open. Zen, Mahamudra, eyes open. Everything open. If you see pictures of the founder of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dzogchen lineage, Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, he's always sitting there like this. <laughs> it looks like he's on a good drug. His, his, eye, his eyes are like saucers. <laughs> Yes, James? Um, yesterday you mentioned something, and I don't know if it's in relation to something to do with your master not being able to take bars anymore. What's that in relation to? Excuse me? About one of your masters not getting people to take bars or things. I don't remember saying that. You, you can? Or you can't remember? I don't remember saying that. Oh, okay. I, I said something about Patrumche vowed not to sleep inside. Is that what you're talking about? I don't remember saying that. No, it doesn't matter. Oh, the man in Nepal, <laughs> right. Then, they, then when people come to him, he doesn't say, are you a Buddhist or not? He just gives them the best that he has. That's what I was talking about. Not vows exactly. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, he just, just gives them the Why shouldn't he? He's an old man. He's not going to be around forever. He just gives them the best that he, they, he has. He doesn't ask them to take refuge or if they're a Buddhist. And we're saying in this kind of teaching is about truth, so it's not just about Buddhism or being a Buddhist or converting from something to something else. Maybe we can end here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.